You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here, welcoming you to the special edition of City Lights Live. Tonight's event is brought to you in conjunction with Mother Jones. Our program is titled Defending Choice, Roe versus Wade, and the Battle to Preserve Women's Reproductive Rights. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. I would like to take this moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land with an offering of respect. With the reversal of Roe versus Wade and its dire consequences threatening women's rights and health care, City Lights and Mother Jones felt compelled to create a forum exploring the issue from a variety of angles. We are honored to be able to bring together this evening four of the most well-versed authorities on the subject for an immersive exploration. Beginning with how we got here, we will explore the historical, legal, medical, and grassroots activist-related aspects of Roe versus Wade. A special focus will be placed on the political and economic issues at the heart of the battle for women's rights. Our participants will offer a deep analysis exposing the connections between the dismantling of Roe versus Wade and the stripping of constitutional protections that extend beyond the issue of reproductive women's reproductive rights and into areas such as campaign finance laws and beyond. We will offer a barometer for where the situation stands and how we can best fight to protect women's rights. A word about our co-presenter tonight. Mother Jones is America's longest established investigative news organization. They are based in San Francisco and have bureaus in Washington, DC and New York. Mother Jones is a reader-supported investigative news organization, recently honored as Magazine of the Year by its peers in the industry. Their nonprofit newsroom goes deep on the biggest stories of the moment, from politics and criminal and racial justice to education, climate change, and much, much more. They reach more than 10 million people each month via their website, their social media, podcasts, and other outlets. Their fellowship program is one of the premier training grounds for emerging investigative reporters in the United States. So joining us tonight as moderator is Becca Andrews. Ms. Andrews is a reporter at Mother Jones who specializes in writing about the Southeast as well as issues around gender and culture. Before joining Mother Jones as an editorial fellow, she wrote for newspapers in the state of Tennessee. Her work has also appeared in Slate, The New Republic, Wired, amongst other outlets. Her first book, No Choice, on the dwindling access to abortion in the United States is due out in October from Public Affairs Books. City Lights is happy to actually be hosting an event for that, so please do check out our calendar. Ms. Andrews will be joined tonight in order of appearance by Joshua Prager, a former senior writer for the Wall Street Journal and the author of the book, The Family Row, illuminating unknown stories and the people behind Roe versus Wade and enabling the public for the first time to see the abortion debate in America in its full social and personal context. The book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Also with us tonight is Mary Ziegler, 
Professor Ziegler is the Stearns Weaver Miller Professor at Florida State University College of Law. She also teaches right now at University of California at Davis. She specializes in the legal history of reproduction, the family, sexuality, and the Constitution. She is the author of numerous books, which include Abortion and the Law in America, A Legal History, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Tonight, we are honored to be celebrating her newly released book, Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. It's published by Yale University Press, and it's an important addition to the dialogue surrounding the politicization of women's bodies. It generates a new understanding of the slow drift to extremes in American politics and shows the effects of the anti-abortion movement on the Republican Party. Also with us tonight is Dr. Katherine Brown. Dr. Katherine Brown is a general obstetrician gynecologist and is fellowship trained in family planning at UCSF. She provides full scope reproductive health care and is a passionate advocate for reproductive health choice and justice. Her research focuses on exploring and improving the reproductive health experiences of African American women. Also with us is Jenny Brown. Jenny Brown was a leader in the fight to get the morning after pill over the counter status in the United States and was a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. She is co-author of the Red Stockings book, Women's Liberation and National Healthcare, Confronting the Myth of America. She writes, teaches, and organizes with the feminist group National Women's Liberation and is the author of Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. Versa Books published her book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. Plainly put, she is an activist's activist. So please join us now in welcoming to our virtual halls this amazing group of activists and scholars. To get the evening started, I will turn it over now to Becca Andrews of Mother Jones to moderate the proceedings. Welcome to City Lights, everyone. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Um, good evening, y'all. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I am here talking to you from Nashville, Tennessee. And I thought we'd start with Josh Prager. Um, Josh, I'd love it if you would just sort of set the stage for us um, and tell us a little bit about the Roe story and, and what it means for this current moment. Well, um, I'll tell you a little bit about, um, first of all, how Roe came to be. So um, Jane Roe was a woman named Norma McCorvey. She was um, from a poor um, and disenfranchised family. Uh, born in Louisiana, moved to Texas. And, you know, a lot of times people have sort of on the pro-choice side, we've lamented that she was the plaintiff because she famously sort of switched sides later, um, became pro-life. And also she was really sort of an imperfect spokesperson for the movement. But I think actually she was in many ways a perfect um, spokesperson because she embodied a lot of the contradictions and ambivalences that surround abortion today. And so her story really is important um, to help us understand sort of where we are today. Uh, matters of class, um, for example, really sort of figured um, in her life um, and uh, very much informed where we are today. So just to tell you a little bit about how she came to be Jane Roe and what Roe was. Um, so she was from a broken home, um, a very religious home. Her um, family became Jehovah's Witnesses when she was a little girl um, soon after they moved from Louisiana to Texas. She was born 1947, so this is in the early 1950s. And um, she remembered sort of peddling 
the Watchtower books with her brother, um, all through the little towns of East Texas. Among the Thou Shalt Nots in that book, of course, are prohibitions on abortion. And um, and she remembered um, as well to me that I, I was able to spend a lot of time with her over the last years of her life, um, that she had a very difficult um, childhood. She was sent to schools for quote-unquote delinquent children. Um, and when she um, came out to her family, she was gay. When she came out to her family, when she was uh, 12, 13 years old, her mother sort of beat her unapologetically. I mention that because at the heart of a lot of the issues that really informed Norma's life was a sort of seeming irreconcilability between sex and religion. And I think that same irreconcilability or the perception of it is often um, at the heart of what has made abortion so fraught in this country, uniquely fraught in ways it isn't in other countries. Well, she was married at 16 to a man um, soon after divorce, got pregnant, thought she would become a mother, but when the child was born, she realized she did not wish to be a mother at all. And she um, begged her mother to take the child off of her hands. She later lied and said that her mother kidnapped the child. That was sort of a pattern in her life. She was often reimagining herself, not as a sinner, in this case, someone who didn't wish to be a mother, but as a victim. Um, she, Her mother did um, adopt a child from her and she was then, she had then, um, gotten pregnant again, relinquished the second child to adoption, and was pregnant for the third time, when in 1970, she said, I really don't want to even carry this pregnancy. I want to have an abortion. Abortion, of course, in 1970, Texas was illegal. It was illegal almost everywhere, actually, in the, in the United States. And she didn't have the money to fly to where it was legal, um, specifically California, because abortion there, um, to protect the physical or mental health of the of the prospective mother was legal until the 20th week and it was open to non-residents of the state um, what ended up happening was she tried she didn't have the money to get there and she didn't have the 500 dollars to pay to a local doctor she found a licensed um, who would perform um, an abortion so she ended up going back to the attorney incredible man named Henry McCluskey, who was the adoption attorney, who, as an aside, had fought the sodomy laws in Texas. And that's actually interesting, too, because it was a lot of overlap, the fights for gay rights and women's rights back then. And she went back to him, Henry, and she said, you know what? My doctor won't perform an abortion. I can't afford to have an abortion. I guess I have to go through this misery again of carrying up the term of pregnancy I don't want. And Henry said, you know what? I went to law school with a woman named Linda Coffey. And Linda Coffey is looking for a plaintiff to challenge the um, uh, abortion laws here in Texas. Norma asked what a plaintiff was. He told her it was someone who brought a lawsuit. And he then introduced her to Linda Coffey. And Linda Coffey is a fascinating figure too. Someone who's one of the central characters in my book. Just to mention one very interesting thing. I didn't know until I dove into this book that the largest group of evangelical Christians in this country at that point, and now I think the Southern Baptist Convention was fervently pro-choice, and Linda Coffey was gay and a Baptist, and there were no sort of problems in that for her in, in being a woman who then wanted to challenge the laws against um, uh, abortion. And so she took on Norma as a client. Now, one of the complicated things, and I apologize, 
my sweating and needing to drink, I just found out I have COVID. So I'm not 100% right now, but um, please take care of yourself. Thanks. I'm okay. <laughs> um, one of the, one of the things that was sort of distressing for me as a person who is pro-choice was to see how Norma was treated by not only um, her lawyers, but also by a lot of the leaders in the pro-choice movement as the years went by. And it was particularly Linda's co-counsel when after Linda agreed to represent Norma and Norma agreed to be her plaintiff, her co-counsel, Sarah Weddington, did not treat her particularly well. Uh, one of the things just to say sort of in the beginning that was immediately a problem was Sarah Weddington and Linda did not tell Norma that Sarah was a member of an abortion referral network, that she was helping people to fly to where abortion was legal. They didn't tell her that. They, she didn't tell her that she herself had had an abortion because Norma was more valuable to them as a prospective plaintiff um, than as someone who was no longer going to be pregnant. Um, anyway, Norma um, filed suit in 1970 and she, the case is not decided until January 1973 um, in one fell swoop and sort of, um, changes everything in the country, but too late for Norma. Norma at that point has long since had to give birth and relinquish a third child to adoption. I'll just say parenthetically, that realization for me, realizing that she had not had an abortion was what led me into this project, this 11 year project writing this book. I said, wow, that means somewhere there is a person whose conception sort of occasioned the real lawsuit. I would like to go find that person. And I did. Eventually, though, I ended up looking at this much larger story. Um, so that's sort of a little bit about how Roe came to be. Um, and uh, I don't know, obviously I can go on from there, but yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think that brings us right up to the Roe versus Wade ruling in 1973. Maybe, uh, Mary, you can kind of take us from there and, and how... Uh, the legal framework developed up to this most recent Dobbs ruling overturning the Roe v. Wade ruling. Sure. So um, I think I've I've thought a lot about, and I think in some ways I've been writing over and over again, the sort of how Roe v. Wade got overturned um, book, which is in part what, when I started writing Dollars for Life, that was not what it was because Roe v. Wade wasn't being overturned, but it was still about kind of efforts to erode abortion rights. Um, and it turned out, you know, that the book came out within about a week of when Roe was overturned. So some of you, the kind of dominant paradigm strategically for a while, right, was that the anti-abortion movement was pursuing what was called incrementalism, right? So incrementalism was the idea that rather than admitting or putting publicly what the anti-abortion movement wanted, which we're seeing now, right, for example, opposition to exceptions for rape and incest, um, you know, a fetal personhood language in statute or in constitutional decisions or in a national law, the movement would kind of get what popular opinion made possible, right? So that would be things like waiting periods, mandated counseling, spousal involvement. And the theory was that by doing that, Roe would kind of be hollowed out, that the, the abortion right would mean much less to certain groups of people, um, in particular, like the people Dr. Brown serves, people of color, low-income people, and so on. The Hyde Amendment was kind of a canonical example of this. Many of you have heard of the Hyde Amendment. Um, it cut off Medicaid funding for abortion. The Hyde Amendment, of course, the argument was on the anti-abortion side, this is consistent with Roe. There's 
no problem here from the standpoint of abortion rights, while in reality, um, in the ballpark of over 200,000 people who would have had abortions the year after the Hyde Amendment passed did not. Um, what I learned uh, the more I studied this was that the anti-abortion movement's campaign to get rid of Roe was not simply a campaign to change the way abortion access works. It was a campaign to change the way American democracy works writ large. And that campaign began, I think, in earnest in the 90s when you had um, a Supreme Court with six conservatives nominated by Republicans who were widely predicted to overrule Roe. And that didn't happen. The perception on the anti-abortion side as to why that didn't happen, um, and the kind of main character in my book who is coming to a lot of these realizations is a fellow named James Bopp. Um, you may have heard of Bopp recently when uh, a 10-year-old girl was raped um, in Ohio and had to cross state lines to Indiana to get an abortion, Bob was widely quoted as saying that under his law, right, what he would like to do in Indiana and elsewhere, that child would have had to carry that pregnancy to term, even though she was 10 years old, um, that she would have come to accept that the child ultimately, in his view, and the sexual assault and all that went with it um, were, were the better outcome. Um, Bob, I think in the 90s, along with his colleagues, began to believe that simply getting Republicans elected in, in terms of both who would confirm and who would nominate Supreme Court justices wasn't enough because Supreme Court justices were worried about what the public thought. They were worried about the limits or perceived limits of their own power because the Supreme Court, of course, doesn't have a budget, doesn't have an army, um, and is viewed as legitimate often only when its views don't deviate or its holdings don't deviate too much from popular opinion. And so coming from this, the, the anti-abortion movement looked back to Clarence Thomas. And the beauty of Clarence Thomas, from Bob's standpoint, was not that he was conservative. It was not that he was a self-proclaimed originalist. It was not that he was a self-proclaimed textualist. It was that he had gone through the Anita Hill hearings and hadn't cared what anybody thought about him, right? He hadn't cared about backlash. He hadn't cared about popular opinion. And the theory coming out of Casey was that there needed to be more justices like Clarence Thomas. And to get there, there needed to be more influence that the anti-abortion movement could exercise over the GOP. Now, how to gain this influence, right? Um, the answer people like Bob came up with in part was money. And they began a fight to deregulate campaign spending. So there's a direct line between the fight to overrule Roe v. Wade and Citizens United. Bob was the person behind the Citizens United litigation. He was the person behind almost all of the litigation, not all, but much of the litigation leading up to Citizens United. He and his colleagues worked very hard to get social conservatives, who are not natural candidates to care about big money in politics, on board. Why weren't they national candidates? Um, because they didn't have as much money, right, as the Koch brothers. But um, someone like James Pop argued, right, this anti-abortion leader, that uh, if there was unlimited spending, that would mean more Republicans in office, and it would mean that the anti-abortion movement would prove its worth to the Republican Party, right? If the Republican Party thought, well, maybe abortion politics on the Republican side shouldn't be that opposed to reproductive rights and justice. Maybe that's a bad idea. The response for people in groups like National Right to Life Committee was to say, um, we'll help you raise more money. We'll help you circumvent existing limits. We'll help you guarantee anonymity to conservative donors in blue cities and blue states who are not willing to sign their names to the kinds of causes to which they're contributing. Um, and the, so the anti-abortion movement in this way, I argue in the book, um, not only helped to kind of usher in the era of big money spending we have now, but helped to kind of disempower the traditional leadership in the Republican Party. Now, the Republican Party has always had plenty of racist dog whistles 
has always kind of catered to a particular kind of voter. But then in office, the historical narrative was that a lot of the most extreme people in the party would be kind of managed, right? Would kind of be pushed to the sidelines so the party could focus on cutting taxes and appealing to the wealthy. But something changed recently, I think many of us noticed. And part of that was money, right? Part of it was the rise of conservative media, of course. Part of it was the polarization of the American electorate, but money mattered too. So an important thing to know about Citizens United was not just that Citizens United meant more money in politics, it meant more outside spending, right? So think super PACs, nonprofits, et cetera. The anti-abortion movement was part of that flood of money into politics and the GOP leadership couldn't control it, right? So when you had somebody like Donald Trump in 2016, there was no way for the traditional leadership to make him go away using money. Part of that because it was because he was self-funded, but part of it was because super PACs were there to cushion his fall. That hadn't been true of people like Pat Buchanan in the 90s. So I think when Roe was overturned in the Dobbs decision, it was stunning to me. Um, I, I was, you know, had to talk a lot about this. It was stunning to me how little the court cared about popular opinion. It was stunning to me, the court actually proclaimed at one point that it didn't care about popular opinion and didn't have to care about popular opinion. It was stunning to me how quickly this happened. Um, this was not a case the Supreme Court had to step in to resolve. There was no, no disagreement in the lower courts about this matter. Um, this was the court in, in a very activist way reaching out to get rid of Roe when there was no obligation to do so. Um, if you dig in, if you're a historic history nerd, Every scholar cited in Dobbs has some affiliation with the anti-abortion movement. The court cites absolutely no other scholars. The court dismisses the leading constitutional theory for abortion rights, one based on sex equality, in a paragraph in a supreme irony by saying, of course, this theory is bad because of precedent in a case overruling a precedent that is 50 years old, right? So th this is... Um, a way, I think, that you can see Dobbs was an extremely, I think, kind of activist movement aligned opinion. But how we get to Dobbs, in part, is not just because the anti-abortion movement was really smart or did a good job aligning with the Federalist Society, although that's true. It was also the case that the anti-abortion movement had changed what kind of Supreme Court we have, changed the extent to which people on the Supreme Court care about what you and ordinary voters think. Um, and it changed the way the Republican Party works going forward. So it's not surprising to me that the abortion bans we see coming up now are more extreme than the ones we've been used to over the course of the past several decades, because the Republican Party sponsoring that version of the Republican Party we have now in the states is different than the one we've come to know, even though there are some, obviously there are some through lines. We live in a very different world now when it comes to abortion, and I think when it comes to democracy at large. So I'll stop there. Absolutely. Thank you. That was really great context. Um, Dr. Brown, I wonder if I might kick it to you. Um, I'd love to, to hear you talk a little bit about the inequalities that you think are likely to be exacerbated uh, in this moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, um, I think when we kind of think about choice, in general, I mean, um, we've already talked a little bit about the Hyde Amendment and how that's really limited choice for, that's just one aspect that's, a, that's limited 
choice for people for the last almost 50 years. Um, and a lot of my patients, um, luckily I'm in, I live in California where um, our um, state Medicaid program, Medi-Cal funds abortion, but in for the majority of states that has not been the case. So um, what that means is that people have already, you know, prior to Dobbs had to um, pay for their abortion. On top of that, there's much other um, anti-abortion legislation that has closed down many clinics. So it just makes abortion completely inaccessible. It's already been inaccessible for many people, very expensive to afford, um, challenging to get to appointments, um, had to, patients have already had to deal with waiting periods that make them take extra time off work. Um, and those are things that obviously um, are going to um, really affect people who can't afford to pay for abortion, can't afford to take off work, can't afford to have people um, take care of the kids that they already have, that they need care for while they go to their appointments. Um, so it marginalizes people who are already poor. It marginalizes um, because of the systemic inequalities that exist within our country um, and systemic racism, um, black people and other people of color are disproportionately covered, um, insured through um, Medicaid and disproportionately poor because of those other inequalities. So um, I think now that's just exacerbated. These, these inequalities have existed forever within the healthcare system and um, within access to abortion. And then um, it's just compounded exponentially now. Um, I think it's, it's made, it's making abortion care. You know, I'm seeing patients who are coming uh, to California for, um, from other states that now don't have, or they don't have access to abortion care. Um, but it takes a lot of resources to be able to do that, um, to be able to afford to travel, to take the time from work, um, to pay for that care out of pocket, um, or it takes a lot of resources to really find the and navigate the support to be able to do that. So it's exacerbating who is a abortion care accessible to and who has a choice to access that care. I wonder if I could also ask you to talk a little bit about ways abortion stigma affects patient care um, it, from everything and how well a patient can advocate to them for themselves to, to being able to access abortion care in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I, I think um, abortion stigma impacts care in so many different ways. First, it impacts it's um, you know really marginalized uh, abortions marginalized in healthcare. Um, it's siloed into something separate that's not really recognized or respected as a basic human right and a basic part of healthcare, which it is. Um, and so, what that means is that. Um, you know, sometimes people don't feel comfortable even talking to their primary doctors about having access to abortion care um, or wanting to access that care. Um, finding the care oftentimes is on the um, onus of the patient doing that in private, not really knowing where um, to turn. Um, it, um, I think, makes it so that 
you know, in a lot of my research, I've found that sometimes talking to me is the first time people have really talked about their abortion. Mm -hmm. And that's not true for everybody. A lot of people have had communities that they can talk to, but there are a lot of people who um, don't feel comfortable, haven't really had the community to talk about what their abortion meant to them um, and to be able to really, um, really honor kind of what their experience was and, and move forward from that. Thank you so much for that. Um, and Jenny, I'd love to hear a little bit from you about um, the activism side of things. You know, where do we where do we go from here? What can we can we hope from activists? Well, um, we're in an interesting situation, right? Because abortion has much more public support than it had in 1973. Um, but through the decades, our organizing has really focused on legal cases and lobbying. And basically, a, what I think has been an apologetic, somewhat timid, respectable approach that you would kind of expect when your main audience is funders and judges and legislators rather than an appeal to the general public. So um, I think these tactics have run their course and that people are really enthusiastic about taking action at this point. Um, and I think we need to return to some of the tactics that won us the abortion rights that we did get uh, 50 years ago, which were part of the broad radical demands of, of the women's liberation movement um, and really the general freedom struggle, which was in uh, uh, full action at that point. Um, but I would say that given the enemies arrayed against us, we really need to unite across uh, movements. And I think some of the stuff that Mary Ziegler was pointing out about our, the general attack on democracy means that we can't, as just a feminist movement, win some of this stuff. Um, and one of the things that we've noticed uh, recently is that there, there's a lot of discussion among uh, the corporate think tanks about the flagging birth rate. And in my book, Birth Strike, I go into great de gory detail, if people are interested, of all of the problems that they predict will, will result from a low birth rate, including economic stagnation, lack of profit opportunities, uh, lack of consumers, lack of people to recruit for the military. Um, this is a long-term problem that they're facing in a lot of countries. In other countries, they have responded by promoting positive stuff like making it easier to have kids. And in some cases, like in France and Sweden, they've actually been able to, to um, uh, raise the birth rate that way. Um, but uh, in the U.S., we basically face a cheaper pronatal policy, which is essentially let's just not provide any of the things that you need to have kids, which we'll is make it harder for you to access birth control and abortion and, and good sex education. So that with that picture, I think we can see that this is not just something that the feminist movement can do. Now, I would say that uh, one of the things that that we really think is important in my group, National Women's Liberation, is to defy the laws publicly. Um, we had a hundred years of underground abortion. It didn't change the laws in our favor, 
only when we made the fight public through speak outs, talking about our experiences with illegal abortion, and then making a demand for free abortion on demand, um, did that make a difference. So while it may feel more concrete to do underground efforts to provide abortions, you know, at least someone was able to get an abortion, right? By nature, it's secret. And we think that open defiance of the law has to be an element of our struggle. Um, and here I have to raise up the memory of Bay Area abortion rights hero, Pat McGinnis, who died mm -hmm. last year in Oakland. Um, she and her comrades broke the taboo on using the word abortion, for example. The newspapers used to say illegal operation. Um, and they distributed lists of abortion providers in other countries. Um, this was illegal at the time. They constantly tried to figure out how to break the laws in order to challenge them. Um, and they broke all kinds of Comstock era laws, you know, from the 1870s, laws from the 1870s and uh, that, that meant you couldn't talk about uh, abortion and birth control. Um, and they were actually able to vacate the one in San Francisco through breaking the law. Um, and then they this is includes teaching DIY classes on how to do your own abortion, which is something that Pat had figured out how to do. And along with her comrades, Rowena Gurner and um, Lena Clark Fallon, who's, I guess, Fallon Khan now, um, they were known as the Army of Three. They taught their class in San Mateo in 1967 because the DA had threatened to enforce the law against her and so she said oh well let's go there and and make sure they get a flyer for the event they were finally did get arrested in that case which was dropped after row so those who want to openly break the law on abortion pills and bring legal challenges the, these are foremothers who were worth studying um and somewhat in that spirit the florida chapter of my group national women's liberation started a public pledge to aid and abet abortion Initially, it was in defiance of the Florida legislature, and now we've gone national with it. Um, this is a strategy that we used also to get the morning after pill over the counter. In that case, we had pledges from people all over the country saying, I will give a friend the morning after pill, which was illegal because it was a prescription drug. And we, we faxed those pledges to the FDA in great batches for, for over a year. We would constantly be faxing faxing these pledges, pledging to break the law um, from every corner of the country. So um, we're doing a similar thing with, with this, at, and you can sign up or check it out at aidandabetabortion.org. Um, Shout Your Abortion has done actions around taking abortion pills publicly to clarify that it's, that it's safe, that it's available. Um, so that's very important. The second thing that we think is really important is, again, Mary Ziegler is right about this, attack the, the legitimacy of the court um, and, frankly, the U.S. Senate. So here we have two undemocratic bodies that are working in tandem to enforce undemocratic laws. The court says, oh, corporations can spend unlimited money or destroy union rights in the public sector or shred voting rights or they... EPA can't regulate greenhouse gases, and or they say the states can ban abortion. And then the Senate, with its undemocratic makeup, and then the filibuster rule on top of that, means we do not have a legislature that can respond to this. 
So essentially, we have left the court to legislate. And this is a crisis for our democracy, and we should treat it as such, especially given the personnel on the court right now. And then uh, a couple more things that I think are really, um, will be really fruitful if we could win. Um, keeping up the fight uh, in the Food and Drug Administration to put abortion pills over the counter. We managed to get some of the red tape off of the pills last December, so that made it legal for groups like abortionondemand.org to uh, send pills by mail order. Uh, but that's only in states where abortion is legal and telemedicine is legal. But studies are showing that the pills would be safe over the counter, and more studies are underway right now to confirm that. Um, Dan Grossman at UC San Francisco, and I'm sure Dr. Brown knows other people that are working on this. Um, and so that's a longer term effort because it requires going a drug company and it go, requires going through the FDA. But, but I think we should keep that on the front burner because it would significantly cre increase access. Um, and then another area that I think people are already doing, which is tremendously important, is to defend people who are seized by the state for violating the new laws. I mean, even before Dobbs, when Lizelle Herrero was arrested in South Texas um, for allegedly giving herself an abortion at home, um, there was an immediate local mobilization along with national outrage. And cases like this give us the opportunity to inflict pain on any prosecutor who dares to try to impose these laws on us. And so while we have uh, governors putting pressure on prosecutors to prosecute the laws, for example, in Florida, um, we need to have a countervailing pressure to make it like, I don't want to enforce this law because it's going to be a freaking circus. There are going to be protesters outside the courthouse, outside my house. I, I just don't want to get into that hornet's nest. So, so that, I think, is a really important area. And then, um, yeah, so th those are some of the areas that I think, uh, uh, I think are really uh, key right now. Great, thank you. Um, I have a couple of follow-up questions that I'd like to throw out there, and I would like to invite our audience to uh, submit questions in the chat. That's questions, not comments, y'all. Thank you. I'd like to start with uh, Josh. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the power of Norma's story, you know, like what ways that you feel like Norma's story uh, has really reached people and, and any like surprising feedback you've gotten on your book? Well, I think what was the most surprising thing to me about the book was that it was embraced by both sides. Um, the head, for example, of the largest Southern Baptist convention in America told people that they need to read it, Peggy Noonan, who's ardent, you know, opponent to grow at the Wall Street Journal to people, they need to read it. And what that told me was that I think if you're really honest with people, they will um, read what you've written. And um, I did my very best, I guess, to sort of strip away any spin and to really just present facts. That meant, unfortunately, I guess, depending on how you look at it, that there were sort of things in the book that could be sort of weaponized by both sides. But I do think it's very important. So on the one hand, while I would sort of do away with, you know, a lot of the pseudoscience that's put forward by the pro-life world, for example, what you, you ask about Norma, one of the things that was so interesting about her life, she's obviously known um, as Jane Roe, but really in many ways her life speaks more loudly or more, 
more to the point about adoption than abortion. She never had an abortion, um, but she was sort of made to, she was made to sort of carry a pregnancy she didn't want to, and she relinquished, as I said, three children to adoption. As a result of that, she suffered her whole life um, um, enormously, and she spoke about that. And obviously, people on the pro-life side, they want to say, hey, a woman who has an abortion, um, she's going to suffer emotionally. Um, she should just sort of carry the pregnancy and give her child up for adoption. And the exact opposite is true. While obviously there are individuals um, who might regret, well, women and girls who might regret sort of having an abortion, the great majority of them are, you know, enormous studies show, express relief as opposed to regret. And the exact opposite is true um, with adoption. There's a very hefty percentage of women who relinquish children to adoption who feel sort of haunted by that. Um, and so enormous life spoke to that. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is important for people to recognize is that, in my opinion anyway, abortion is fraught for good reason. It doesn't mean that, that abortion ought not to be legal. But to recognize that, at least, was something that I think, and I do that in my book, people say, okay, this person is, is, is not just immediately dismissing me. What I mean by that is, um, on the one hand, you have the humanity of the fetus. On the other, you have the very sort of real, powerful, existential reasons a woman might wish to have an abortion. And, you know, once upon a time, that was recognized by everyone in the pro-choice movement. Um, it is not now currently in favor to say so, but President Clinton, for example, his famous for formulation was that abortion ought to be safe, legal, and rare. And we don't say that now. And one of the reasons why um, I write about it in my book is really a man named Dr. Curtis Boyd, who became one of the heads of the pro-choice movement. And decades before, Kathy Pollitt and others were saying that abortion is only a social and moral good. Um, it's not something that should be rare. Dr. Boyd was saying that 30, 40 years ago. And he was saying, um, again, it only empowers a woman. Um, and, 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 but what is, what is what is complicated then, what makes it more complicated is yes, he is a person now who's a very important man. He he not only pioneered the accepted um, method of second trimester abortion in this country, <laughs> now the largest provider of third trimester abortion in this country because his friend Dr. George Tiller was murdered. He stepped into that void. But Dr. Boyd has also come to a very radical position. He now feels that abortion ought to be legal, literally up to the moment of birth. And so I think it's important to recognize um, that abortion is complicated and that even if you feel very strongly that it ought to be legal, um, it's important to, to, to understand not only that, it, that good human beings can disagree with you, but also what's really important is to understand the history you know, we look back in 1973, abortion was not a political, it was not yet politicized, or that just barely begun to be politicized. Reba Siegel and Linda Greenhouse write a little bit about this. Um, but for the most part, it was not, it had not yet been sort of turned into a political issue. I write in my book about how Mildred Jefferson, a brilliant woman, the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, who then became one of the leaders of the pro-life movement, in 1976, when she was the head of the National Right to Life Committee, she really sort of forced the issue. She made abortion a political issue. She forced candidates in the 1976 
of presidential elections to take a stance on it. And little by little, you see how it became politicized and politicians fell into line. On the, on the pro-life side, you had um, George Bush and Ronald Reagan, they sort of flipped on the other side. You had Dick Gephardt, Jesse Jackson, Al Gore, and others sort of flipping there. So I think to just sort of understand that it used to not be the way it is now, I think it, 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 it does us all um, good to understand how we got here. Thank you. Um, and Professor Ziegler, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where you see the anti-abortion movement going from here. Yeah, it's really unpredictable, right? So if you had asked me historically, um, there was literally, like you could Google it, a thing called Defending Life that was put out by a group called Americans United for Life. And that was the playbook for every state legislature um, across, not, not every, but most state legislatures across the country. So it would probably, some of you have experienced this, that there would be um, copycat legislation spreading across the country. And so it was pretty easy to predict what would happen next. In about 2019, some of you may remember these so-called heartbeat bills or heartbeat bans, right, that were banning abortion at six weeks, um, which is about two weeks after somebody would plausibly know they were pregnant. Um, those were not sponsored by the kind of anti-abortion establishment. They were sponsored by a kind of breakaway group um, called Faith to Action, um, which is run by a, a, a woman named Janet Folger Porter, who was known earlier in her career, uh, both for kind of birtherism, right, arguing that President Obama was not born in the United States and therefore could not be president, um, and for uh, kind of gay conversion therapy. That was a lot of her earlier work. Then we had in Texas, um, SB8, which some of you have heard of, this bill that allows literally anyone to sue doctors or people broadly defined to Jenny's point um, to have aided or abetted someone seeking an abortion. Um, that bill, again, didn't come from the usual suspects, didn't come from the anti-abortion establishment. It came from a gentleman named Jonathan Mitchell, um, who's this former Texas Solicitor General, and a, a gentleman named Mark Lee Dixon, who uh, is a, a preacher in Northeast Texas, whose office, as he puts it, is the local Chick-fil-A, who had begun a campaign to ban abortions in small towns in Texas. That strategy, too, has been spread nationwide. So I think there are different possibilities. There are some ascendant national organizations. I would include in that group Students for Life, um, Live Action. These are groups that are more um, absolutist, right? Groups that say, for example, there is no such thing as a medically necessary abortion. So we don't need to have an exception for the life of the pregnant person. Um, groups that are totally cool saying there need be no rape and incest exception. Um, there are some groups, not those that have even flirted with the idea that pregnant people should be punished for abortion, which is not a mainstream position yet in the anti-abortion movement. Um, so one possible future is that these more um, extreme groups take the place of Americans United for Life, and they start dictating the play in conservative legislatures across the country. Another alternative is just chaos, which is sort of what we're seeing now, where literally there are tons of organizations, state, local, national, competing to be the ones writing legislation, which means that what your laws are gonna look like if you live in a conservative state is anybody's guess. So what you have now, for the most part, are trigger laws 
and zombie laws. Trigger laws are laws that were passed before anyone knew Roe was going to be overturned that would go into effect upon Roe being overturned. Zombie laws are laws from like the 19th and early 20th centuries that were never driven off the books, that were just sort of sitting there idle until Roe was overturned. Those were never meant to be the final word, right? So if you've heard, oh, Texas has this abortion ban or Alabama has this abortion ban, that's the beginning, not the end. And it's particularly the beginning, not the end, when you think about enforcement. So you can order abortion pills on the internet from groups like Aid Access, even if you live in Alabama. And of course, if you have the means, you can travel um, potentially further away, as Dr. Brown was saying, or um, if you have fewer resources, maybe somewhere somewhat closer, like Florida, which has fewer, doesn't have a ban as early in pregnancy, for example, um, as Alabama does. But that, of course, infuriates conservative legislators because they see that as an end run around what they view as the, the movement for personhood, right? What The important thing to emphasize here, the anti-abortion movement was not an anti-Roe movement. It is a fetal rights movement, which means that each state doing its own thing is fundamentally dissatisfying to the people in that movement. The end point then, if you see this as a human rights struggle, is either a national ban through a statute in Congress or a constitutional amendment, or probably more likely and even better, it's a constitutional decision by the conservative Supreme Court declaring that a fetus is a person and that abortion is unconstitutional everywhere, including in California, right? So that's where the movement wants to go. In the meantime, how is it gonna get there? It's probably gonna to try to make it harder for people in states like California to help people from out of state, right? It's gonna be strategies like, you know, passing laws that limit travel trying to apply criminal and civil prohibitions to doctors in California, um, trying to treat the shipment of abortion pills as drug trafficking, trying to define um, hosting a website, if you're Google, about how to have a medication abortion as aiding or abetting. Um, so I think we're seeing um, an expansion of, or a kind of, I guess, attack on the line between speech and conduct um, and an attack, ironically, on the idea of states' rights, right? On the idea that people have a right to travel to get different kinds of care or that states have a, a right to do their own thing and set their own policies. So I, that's where I guess things would be going. But there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen right now. There are a lot of people who have a lot of ego, who have a lot of strategic disagreements. And if you ask me which one is going to win, you know, I'm, I study this and I talk, I, I, get, I think like Josh, strangely, a lot of people I don't agree with on this issue, like respect me and tell me things they shouldn't. And so from all of those conversations, I can tell you that they, they don't know where it's going either. But I think that it's going in the direction of bands that are more sweeping. Um, and in the meantime, the confusion itself has a tremendously damaging effect on patients, right? Um, and on doctors, because they just don't know what's going to happen. It changes day to day. I wonder if you could also just really briefly tell us uh, where the title Dollars for Life comes from. Sure. Um, in the chat. Yeah, um, Dollars for Life, the, the title came from um, the idea that, the, the kind of mystery that motivated the book. So when I started doing this research, I kept noticing all these anti-abortion groups fighting about campaign finance. And I'm like, this is just really weird because these groups don't have that much money. I mean, some of the big anti-abortion super PACs have money. But not, you know, it, nothing like the Chamber of Commerce, right? Nothing like Freedom Works. These are not major, major players. So I thought, why do these people care when it seems that their money would be drowned out by much, much bigger money? And, and what I found increasingly was this idea that campaign finance norms for the anti-abortion movement 
were a way to make sure that the GOP was not responsive to the electorate, right, was responsive to right-wing movements like the gun rights movement or the anti-abortion movement. Um, and so that was the idea, right? That was, I think, what people thought. Um, the idea, dollars for life, was that quite literally, the more money you had, the better the odds of reversing Roe. And of course, this, this trajectory, right, that you would want to have a less democratically responsive GOP um, has to continue, of course, right? Because getting Roe reversed was unpopular, right? Can you imagine what a nationwide abortion ban would pull like? I can tell you about 20% of Americans think that abortion should be mostly or entirely illegal. That's an incredibly unpopular position. If you pull people on, is there a right to travel? You get large majorities of Republicans and Democrats and independents saying, yes, you should be able to travel out of state to get an abortion or to get health care if you need it. And so the only way you're ever going to get personhood is through this continued path, right? Which is to say, and, and run around what people want because people don't want a nationwide abortion ban, right? So I think the dynamic in Dollars for Life is very much continuing. It's not like the folks in the anti-abortion movement were like, hooray, we won. Now we can all go back to voting Democratic, which some people have said in print. People in the movement thought, hooray, we won. Now we can get to you know, the main event, which is an abortion ban. Um, and I think that we're, the question now is whether that's going to happen, right? Whether the country is democratic enough still um, to prevent that from happening, which maybe is true. We had the, a recent vote in Kansas, some of you may have followed, that suggests that the will of the electorate matters. But, you know, that's just one round in a much larger struggle as we've seen from following the history thus far. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Brown, there's a question in the chat about uh, the importance of keeping the decision to have an abortion between a patient and a doctor and, and the importance of sort of keeping the government out of the exam room. Yeah, I mean, I um, I think about like my when I when I think about this, I think about my my research on um, black women's experiences, specifically mm. in abortion care, and how much within that discussion, just people talked about their experiences, both as pregnant people, um, as um, people trying to become pregnant at other points in their lives um, or just accessing healthcare in general as a non-pregnant person and how much and how common it was to just like not really have their autonomy and their, um, their values and um, knowledge and um, ownership and expertise in their own bodies and how um how that has been totally just disrespected in general and healthcare and is something that we continue to need to work on but there's something that's so um just disturbs me to the absolute core to have anybody else think that they would know what's best for that patient. And I think about this, honestly, every time that I'm sitting with a patient, understanding who they are. Um, and sometimes I learn pieces about, you know, the circumstances of their lives. And it's um, just completely just a fundamental break in human rights that, that we would think that the courts would know what's best for that person. Um, really under any circumstance. And, you know, I can, there's 
stories that I can think of that, you know, are specifically compelling to everybody, but it really is, it's a fundamental right for, um, that everybody should have. And it doesn't really matter what the circumstances are. It's, um, just, just so disturbing to think that, um, the courts or the law should have control over people's bodies in that way when it really is a, such a personal decision and it's complex and it's also complicated to not to to um to really ignore we we acknowledge that you know abortion is is complex and there's a lot of tension in there and there's a lot of tension in making that decision for people and um I think it really honors people who are choosing to have abortion to just have that, to, to be able to make that choice. Cause we recognize that people are making difficult decisions within the context of their lives and no one else can have that um, knowledge over, over what's best for somebody except for the person themselves. Thank you so much for that. Um, Jenny, there's also a question for you in the chat about um, where you think Planned Parenthood has been effective and where it has strategically failed, I think this this question is probably framed in talking about Planned Parenthood's political organizing and not necessarily the the healthcare infrastructure. Um, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to get back a little bit to some of the history because I I think mm -hmm. um, I think. There's something I disagree with Josh about, so I wanted to say a couple words about that. So, um, f first of all, the you know abortion was legal for the first hundred years of the country, and it was made illegal nationally in 1873 through the Comstock Law, which also banned all information about sex and all information about contraception. And that was that was a big fight. It was quite controversial at the time. The people who were pushing those the laws in the states and then federally were primarily doctors. The clergy were not really um, that opposed to abortion, and uh, newspapers took lots of advertisers from for, for abortion providers. It wasn't, you know, so so that was a period where um, where it became political. And the reason that it was made political was that the birth rate had dropped from eight children per woman in 1800 to four children per woman in 1900, largely due to abortion being being available since contraception was not that effective. And it was fear of uh, Catholic immigrants taking over the country that was actually one of the main articulations of why they wanted to, to make abortion illegal to get uh, married Protestant women to stop controlling the size of their families and start having larger families again. So, um, and then, you know, we had a hundred years of illegal abortion where it was absolutely unacceptable to even mention abortion in a newspaper. We had, you know, it wasn't that it became political in 1968 or 73. It was that it was um, constantly a fight and people were being forced to have children against their will um, for a hundred years. Um, and the reason that it it started to look like it, uh, a politi uh, political in the sense of being split between Democrats and Republicans 
1970, you didn't see that split as, as, uh, as strongly. That's absolutely true. What you saw was a few Republicans, including um, Constance Cook, who introduced the, the law in New York, um, uh, being very supportive of abortion rights. And, uh, and, then, and then Rockefeller, who was another Republican, who was governor at the time, um, defended the law. Um, but there was a split at that point in the power structure around uh, what they regarded as a population explosion, which was, you know, they, they accused uh, women of having too many babies, of filling up the welfare rolls, of causing crowding and crime, rebellion uh, or urban rebellion. By 1975, the birth rate had dropped so sharply that that uh, that split in the power structure ended. And and basically the Republicans reunited by 1980. They were all reunited. They purged all the pro-choice people out of the Republican Party and they were reunited around it. an anti-abortion position, which was the position of every politician before the movement started to get uh, strong in the in the late 60s. So um, so I think if you look at the history of it, actually there was sort of a, a unity around an anti-abortion position it was broken up when the women's liberation movement made a, a clear demand for free abortion on demand. And then, uh, and then you see a realignment that follows that. And the Catholic church obviously was the main opponent starting. And then you see, start to see the realignment with Protestant, uh, Protestants. So, so I think it's very important to understand that history so that we don't think, oh, well, this was just sort of a thing that nobody thought about. And then suddenly it became controversial. Um, it's always been a, been a big fight. Um, on, on Planned Parenthood, I, you know, I, I think that like other nonprofits, and I think this is a problem for act, activism in the movement in the United States in general, you know, you have to you have to um, uh, appeal to funders and judges, and and it's it's not about getting more individuals to support you because the funding is coming from essentially not foundations which are rich people using using the foundation to avoid paying taxes. So so that's what's funding a lot of the movement in the United States, and it's not a surprise that um, as a result we do not have a movement that's making big demands of capital, for example, to get rid of the entire health insurance industry and give everybody health care. Um, that, you know, that that's not something you hear nonprofits talking about, but that is the way that we will eventually get reproductive justice in this country is by everybody having all the health care they need, including uh, abortion and birth control. Um, so it's not so darn hard to get this stuff because of payment and there's not the stigma that you're on some program or your insurance doesn't cover this and all of the things and the denials of care that we see and just the unavailability of, of care that people need. Um, and it, you can see how, how little we won as a result of this timid approach. I think, for example, in Argentina, when they passed a law legalizing abortion in December 2020. Um, it says up to 14 weeks, the government has got to give you the abortion once you request it within 10 days. Um, so 
and the movement demanded five days and no gestational limits. Um, now they're working to make that real now, but it really casts a light on what we did not win with Roe. We won the sterile technical right to go out into the private market and pay for an abortion, but we did not win the right to uh, control our reproductive lives, which is what we ultimately need to uh, aim at. It's, it's tempting to say, oh, things were so much better before Dobbs, let's just go back to that. But we know that that is not good enough and it's way behind what other countries have and it's way behind what we need. Um, so I think that one of the things that we need to start demanding is a national health system that provides all of these things. But you won't see nonprofits doing that because they're beholden to uh, corporate grants, corporations, often insurance companies. It's, you know, that's, that's why it's tied up in that system. And you, you get people talking about covering the uninsured rather than covering everybody, the insured and the uninsured together. Mm. Before I move on to the next question, did anyone have anything to add? Yeah, I'll just say one thing. I guess you and I, Jenny, can go back and forth on this. I wasn't saying that there wasn't disagreement over abortion before Roe. There was massive disagreement. Had to do often with religion or race, for example. But when it came to politics in this country, Republicans and Democrats, there was, for example, broad bipartisan support for Reagan's um, abortion um, act in 1967. And what to me was always the most telling thing was the first justice who was came before the Senate after Roe, um, Justice Stevens. Um, he was literally not even asked his opinion of Roe um, during his Senate confirmation hearing. So it was not political in the way that it is today. And I think that is something that is worth noting. Yeah, and I mean, I think I would say too, I think, so I think everybody's right. So that's like the history answer. I'm like, it's complicated and we all win, right? No, just kidding. But um, I think that one way to think about it is that um, and this is, I think, an important point, too, because one of the reasons the Supreme Court gave for overruling Roe was essentially to say it used to be that we all lived in heaven and we all got along and everything was perfect and we all thought the same way on abortion. And then one day Roe came along and then we started to fight and this thing called partisan politics was born. Now, I'm saying that in a way that sounds ridiculous because that's ridiculous. Right. So on the one hand, there was a pretty heated abortion battle before Roe. Right. Um, you had. Uh, state by state pitch battles um, in places like Michigan, in places like North Dakota. On the other hand, it wasn't a partisan issue. So Josh is right that if you said, okay, tell me what is the anti-abortion political party in 1971, people would have looked at you like, what? There, there isn't one. I mean, there's, there's anti-abortion politicians in both parties and there's pro-choice politicians in both parties, but there was no party. And so the, the polarization we associate with the abortion issue, whether that's the kind of ugliness of no exception bans or the violence or a lot of that, that came later and for reasons beyond Roe. So the idea that um, all we need to do to solve our problems and make people nice to one another about abortion is get rid of Roe. Obviously, we know that isn't true now, right? Because we're living through that it isn't getting better, it's getting worse. But it was always ridiculous because 
The reason the abortion debate was heated always had more to do with people's underlying views about religion and the roles of women, the nature of pregnancy, um, people's visions of sexuality, right, and, and LGBTIQ people too. All of that predated Roe. Um, and some of the political realignment, I know some folks in the chat mentioned Paul Weyrich, mentioned the religious right, the campaign finance piece I've talked about was part of this, the rise of things like Fox News and Newsmax was part of this. Polarization is a lot more complicated than that, right? So, I mean, obviously overruling Roe wasn't going to solve it. It was going to make things worse. But um, I think everyone is right in a way. Um, and the important takeaway, of course, there, one of the important takeaways is that um, if you are unhappy about polarization or the kind of divide about basic questions like democracy, um, you have to look. There are a lot of people to blame, but the Roe decision is not one of those things. I'll just add one thing. It was also fascinating for me to learn that even the Catholic Church, we just sort of assume always was sort of as absolute on abortion as, as it is today. That's not true. 1917 is really as recent as 1917 is when they sort of said, um, you know, the life of each is equally sacred, the mother and the, and the child. Um, but for 700 years before that, the Catholic, for all but three, there was a tiny little window, three years where they were different. For all but three of the previous 700 years, they differentiated between abortions pre and post quickening. Um, and so even the, the Catholic Church was not as absolute on abortion as it is today. And the reason that the Catholic Church, uh, well, I mean, actually the decision was, was in the mid 1870s um, and then they reinforced it in 1917. But was that the birth rate in the largest Catholic country in the world, France, had been dropping precipitously as a result of abortion and contraception. Um, so if you check, check that out too, because uh, that's, that's an important element of this. Thanks, y'all. Scintillating discussion. There's also, and I'm gonna try to synthesize this as well as I can through the chat, there's been a lot of questions about the American Medical Association's involvement and their conversations maybe with the White House uh, in the aftermath of Dobbs. Uh, Dr. Brown, I wonder if you know anything about that or if that's kind of outside. Yeah, I would say that might be a little bit outside of my um, area of expertise, but um, the American Medical Association and ACOG and it's a, um, every major um, medical, respected medical society um, has, uh, has continued to say how abortion is essential healthcare and um, so to say that abortion care is something that is needed and should be um, legal and maintained and still accessible. Thank you. Um, there's also a question about the role of privacy law in the current Dobbs ruling and going forward. Um, I wonder if Professor Ziegler wants to start on with that. Sure, yeah, you, you can also call me Mary. I feel like, you know, it's making me feel old. <laughs> Everybody gets there for sorry. I'm gonna go with Dr. Brown until somebody tells me to stop. But like, Listen, I, I feel I'm weird Southern, calling me Professor like, Ziegler. I'm like, we're not in class. And if any of my students are on this, you have to call me Professor Ziegler in class. But um, yeah, I mean, so Dobbs, 
tries to do this pretty big takedown of privacy, right? So the rationale in the Dobbs ruling is the court says the only rights we have that are unenumerated, that is to say not spelled out in the text or history of the Constitution, are ones that are quote unquote deeply rooted in history and tradition. So what does that mean? Well, according to the Supreme Court, history and tradition is fixed, right? So it, it began and ended at the time the 14th Amendment, which is the relevant part of the Constitution, was ratified. So what rights did people have at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified? That was 1868. The court looks at this and says, well, at that time, um, as Jenny and others have suggested, many states were criminalizing uh, abortion um, and criminalizing it early as well as later in pregnancy. Um, Josh mentioned the quickening distinction. That quickening refers to when um, fetal movement can be detected. So depending on the pregnancy, that can be anywhere between 16 and 20 weeks. Up until that point, many states didn't clearly or at all ban abortion before quickening. So the court looks at this and says, well, if all these states were criminalizing abortion, clearly folks in the 1868 didn't think it was a right, so therefore it can't be a right now. And then they have to have a disclaimer and say, of course, this doesn't mean we're overruling your right to contraception. It doesn't mean we're overruling your right to marriage equality. It doesn't mean we're overruling your right to have intimate sexual relationships doesn't mean we're overruling anything having to do with interracial marriage. Why did they need that disclaimer? Because guess what else was illegal in the 19th century, right? Um, I think at the time uh, there was the Comstock Act, as Jenny mentioned. Um, I, I don't I don't have the exact, I don't remember the exact figures, but I think <coughs> more than 20 states had their own laws criminalizing contraception. Many laws had um, laws against, uh, many states rather had laws against sodomy, right? So anal or oral sex, those laws were just beginning to be um, focused on uh, LGBTIQ folks. So before that, they had been more sort of generally like sodomy is bad. They were beginning to be anti-gay laws. Um, interracial marriage, of course, was banned in many parts of the country. So the court essentially says, you know, don't worry about all that stuff. That stuff is different because only abortion involves the taking of a fetal life. And then Clarence Thomas intervenes to say, actually, no, we're going to overrule all that stuff too. And they're just telling you all this stuff to make you feel better. Now, I, I don't know um, who's right about that. I know clearly what this is actually setting up to be is a fight within the conservative wing of the court, right? Where Clarence Thomas is trying to move the Overton window to make possible things that don't seem possible now. Brett Kavanaugh, who clearly was one of the folks who cast a deciding vote in Dobbs, essentially says, oh, no, no, you know, I'm the deciding vote. I'm definitely not going to go there. I'm definitely not going to let states ban travel from state to state. Now, I would remind you that two years ago, Brett Kavanaugh, in a ruling, essentially wrote a separate kind of concurring opinion saying, hey, you know what? I'm not trying to do anything radical here. I'm not even trying to say this abortion trap law is a problem. I just want to remand for more facts. Like, I'm not a radical, right? Like, I'm, I'm not no big deal. So within two years, Brett Kavanaugh moves from that to we should overrule Roe right away. So I have no idea, but I'm I'm here to tell you that you cannot take as a guarantee that Brett Kavanaugh on the court won't move really far in another two years. So um, this idea of roots rights rooted in history and tradition, of course, is something that's upset a lot of people because one of the things, of course, is whose history and tradition? Who counted in 1868? Because that was at a point when women couldn't vote, right? It was at a time when there were literally zero women practicing law in the United States. It was a time when Reconstruction was being unraveled and people of color were being widely barred from the polls. It was a time even when low-income white men were not consistently being allowed to vote, right? So if, if, if we're talking about 
whose history and tradition, we're talking about a really narrow subset of folks. And that's kind of where the court leaves us um, with what rights we have. And that will, of course, have implications for us that go beyond um, this conversation, as important as it is. I'd also just like to pause here one more time and see if anyone else has something they would like to talk about or bring up. Yeah, I'd like to um, mention that I think one of the directions that the right is going is in, the, which kind of keys off what what Mary Ziegler is talking about, is is getting rid of uh, the right to birth control. And one of the strategies for this has been, and you see this in like the Students for Life literature. Um, they claim that all hormonal birth control, so, you know, birth control pill, daily birth control, um, is abortion, is abortifacient. So um, this is how they're trying to, in addition to IUDs, the shot, all of the, all of the different methods of birth control that are hormonal and IUDs that are non-hormonal are all going to be regarded as abortion. So if you can convince a legislature, say in Texas, that that's true, then they can start banning all of that too. So um, that's clearly one of the strategies that they're that they're reaching for. And um, this, I think, is really shows that this is not driven by a grassroots political movement because 80% of anti-abortion people think access to birth control should be allowed as important. Um, so, which shows that it's a top-down driven movement, and we can argue about the reasons for that, but it's definitely not, the anti-birth control uh, aspect of this is not coming from the grassroots. That is not a, uh, that, you know, the, e even among anti-abortion folks, 80% are not, are not for that. Thanks. Uh, I had a question that I, I wanted to, to put to y'all. Um, and it's about the importance of using gender neutral language in talking about abortion access. I just wanted to ask for um, thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I struggle with this. I tend to default to saying women and pregnant people, because on the one hand, if you just say pregnant people, which like now that I'm saying this, I realized I've done this several times during this conversation, right? But I mean, obviously you need to be inclusive because it's not just women who get pregnant, right? And people who are trans or non-binary who are pregnant in a post-row world are going to experience, I think, intersecting forms of discrimination that are especially bad. So we need to acknowledge those people. At the same time, you know, as a historian, and I'm sure Josh would understand this too, if you don't use the word women at all, um, you're ignoring both, I think, the way many people in the anti-abortion movement understand what they're doing. I mean, the term wo woman or women is loaded in this space, right? It's loaded for people who are opposed to abortion. It's loaded for people who are not because so much of the fight about abortion is what we think women are and what we think women ought to do. And so if we drop that word, we're kind of, I think, glossing over some of the history that we need to remember. So I, I, I try to be, you know, and it, it's not, it doesn't sound super elegant to say women and pregnant people, but that's my preferred version because you can't exclude trans and non-binary folks. You also don't want to kind of paper over this really fraught history when we talk about women, which has been central to what we're talking about. And of course there, there are people, obviously, you know, there are children who are involved in this too. Like you'll often hear people saying, 
women and girls and pregnant people, which is correct too, because as we saw um, in Ohio recently, uh, there are children who are getting pregnant who are gonna be affected by these laws as well, not just um, adults who can get pregnant. Yeah, I think, sorry, I don't know if I cut you off. No, I'm good. I'm no, good. <laughs> um, I, I think when we, um, when we like try to be as inclusive as possible and include people who are the most marginalized. And I would say that um, trans and non-binary folks who are accessing abortion care are, are particularly marginalized people um, that we make care better for everybody. And we, um, uh, we can just be more, um, inclusive for everybody. So I am totally in favor of using gender neutral language because I think we move the needle forward and um, are doing better at centering marginalized communities when, we, when we're as inclusive as possible. Absolutely, thank you for that. Oh, I really like this question. Um, what are some actionable steps we can take to make a difference in the short term? Uh, Jenny, I wonder if you can start us off with that one. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on. It sort of depends where you are. Um, <laughs> but uh, so if you're in one of the illegal states, the state that where it's already illegal to get an abortion or severely restricted, um, obviously that's going to be a somewhat different situation. But in... Um, but I think federally we need to uh, we need to work on this stuff with the FDA. So that's that's one area. Um, I think it the Kansas example of a referendum, which um, which it was a anti-abortion referendum that failed miserably, shows that referenda are actually a pretty good way to uh, to tackle this in states like my own home state of Florida, where we have a Supreme Court that is hostile, a legislature that is hostile, but right now the law is sort of hanging by a thread. Um, we have a pro significant pro-choice majority in Florida, so we should think about, uh, in a case like that, let's, let's put it to the people. Um, because right now our legislatures are not really representing uh, in, in states like Florida and other states where there's a lot of gerrymandering, like Texas, um, are not really representing the will of of the population. So, uh, so we have a good chance to actually make that um, make that possible. Um, on the ground, in states where abortion is currently illegal, uh, abortion funds are doing tremendous work. So, National Network of Abortion Funds. Get involved with your local abortion fund, help people who are having to come to your state to get abortions or having to leave your state to get abortions. Um, that's, that's one excellent way to just immediately work on that. And then, um, and then in terms of, obviously we need to uh, fight like hell on, on the elections, right? And make abortion an issue in the elections. Um, but we, we can also do, uh, actual actions that show either the ridiculousness of the of of these anti-abortion laws for example shout your abortion did actions where they took abortion pills publicly um we and my group have this 
aid and abet abortion um, uh, pledge, which has a bunch of ideas for stuff that you can do directly assisting people. Um, and that's at aid and abet abortion.org. Shout Your Abortion is also um, uh, has a website called Abortion Pills Forever. PlanCPills.org has a training system for ambassadors of information about the abortion pill. Um, that is extremely valuable no matter what state you're in. Um, I highly recommend that. That's a good, good way to go. And then there are organizations all over the place. If you're not already in an organization, join an organization because we cannot do this alone. It's not about our individual actions. It's about joining a group that is bigger than us so we'll have enough power to really make these changes. Thank you. I was just gonna add one thing, thank you, that, um, you know, we saw obviously what just happened in Kansas, that there's a, there can be a great disparity between what people think privately and what they publicly say, right? In the privacy of a booth, you can sort of vote what you really believe. And I think it reminded me of something that Justice Blackman wrote in Rome. He said that people's opinions about abortion are often determined by, get this very highfalutin language, raw exposure um, to the, wait a minute, to the, um, I just forgot the phrase. It's a great phrase um, to the, to, excuse me, exposure to the raw edges of human existence. That basically a person's, if they are exposed to humanity, they are influenced. And what he was saying there, that if we know someone, for example, who had an abortion or who needed an abortion, wasn't able to have an abortion, that will sort of influence a person to feel that abortion ought to be legal. He didn't mention there that his own daughter Sally in college had gotten unhappily pregnant and that uh, then uh, married quickly and miscarried and sort of redirected her life. And one of his fellow justices, Justice Powell, actually told a very um, powerful and tragic story to his clerks the next year, also appointed by um, uh, Nixon. And he had said that um, the reason he was in favor of Roe was because when he had been working at a Virginia law firm, um, a young messenger um, at the firm had come to him and said, uh, my girlfriend was pregnant. Um, I took her to an illegal abortion provider. My girlfriend died and now I want it for a manslaughter. So, um, and he said, you know, because of that sort of horrible double tragedy, I now feel that I want to sort of, uh, I voted with Roe, the majority opinion. And that was a long way of saying that I think it's very important for people to share their stories. Obviously, this goes way back uh, earlier, something we talked about stigma. And I think that it is the best single way to sort of destigmatize something, obviously, is to talk about it and to share one's experience. Yeah, I would say um, also what Jenny and Josh said, except to remember that local really matters here. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to gravitate to, you know, who's going to be in the Senate, who's going to be in the White House. And that all obviously matters because, as I mentioned, we could have a nationwide ban. But a lot is going to depend, you know, who's the attorney general? Because prosecutors have a lot of discretion as to what when they use resources to prosecute. Who's the sheriff, right? How are they going to interpret ambiguous laws in terms of who gets punished for aiding or abetting or even for having an abortion? Who's in the state legislature? Who's in the governor's mansion? So uh, I think there hasn't been enough focus for progressives on state and local law. 
um, particularly in, in purple states, but I think to some extent in red states and progressive states as well. And so I think if, if you are someone who's who's really interested in this issue, but you don't have the bandwidth or you don't have the time to, to become an activist yourself, becoming more literate about who you're voting for and what they're likely to do with that vote is a really good starting point. Um, and so if, if I, I would say, you know, if you want to get your feet wet, talking about your own experiences, as Josh was saying, and figuring out how your vote is going to matter is a good starting point. And then hopefully you can build to the kinds of really important work that Jenny was describing. Totally. And I would, I would add just to um, yeah, support your local abortion fund. Um, they are doing great on the ground work and have been doing this work, are very experienced at navigating all of the challenges and BS that's up in place to stop people from getting abortions and how to navigate that and they're experts in it. And really without them, so many people would not have been getting abortions for the last 50 years. So um, they're a great place to start and you can either, you can donate to them or you can um, volunteer with them if you have the time and capacity as well. Absolutely. I just want to co-sign that and say, especially the abortion funds here in the South that have been operating under hostile conditions for so long, they've been the thing that has given me hope and kept me going lately. Um, so shout out to them. Mm -hmm. Y'all, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for this rich discussion. Panelists, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. Participants, thank you so much for tuning in. We're so grateful. Buy your books at City Light. Support independent bookstores, support abortion funds, all that good stuff. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful. Y'all have a good night. Thank you very much. Thank you. As we wind down, uh, I'd like to thank all of our participants for gracing our halls and, and lending their expertise to this really immensely important subject. And, and this has been such a rich discussion and just looking at the chat, which has been so active tonight. Um, Thank you all. Jenny Brown, Dr. Catherine Brown, Joshua Prager, Mary Ziegler. We have been so honored to have you all at the same place at the same time in our house. I'd also like to take a moment to thank Mother Jones for co-sponsoring. Becca Andrews, thank you for doing the honors. Ever grateful to you. Also want to thank Sean Worley of Mother Jones for all of his efforts. And a big shout out to Rebecca Griffin at the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health at UCSF for her help. And of course, to all of you in the audience for helping complete the circle. Uh, just love the fact you've been so active and uh, it's been a pleasure. We have posted links in the chat function with which you may purchase books by all of our participants. Also wanna remind you that Mary Ziegler's book, Dollars for Life, the anti-abortion movement and the fall of the Republican establishment was just released by Yale University Press. So if you have already read some of the books of the other authors participating tonight, we hope you'll pick this one up. Um, a reminder, City Lights is now open for business. We're open seven days a week from 12 noon until 8 p.m. We have actually expanded our hours on weekends from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. So come on down, browse our stacks. We would love to see you. We have a full selection of books on women's studies and the issue of Roe versus Wade. So come on down and learn more. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation. Continuing the legacy of our founder, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, into the future through public events like this one, our publishing program, educational outreach, all dedicated 
to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. Be safe, everyone. Be well. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.